1: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I'm talking with Mary Margaret Steedley, a professor of anthropology at Harvard University, On the sidelines of the Association for Asian Studies conference in Seattle about Rifle Reports, a story of Indonesian independence, published in 2013 by the University of California Press. Mary, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks a lot. This is uh, a real treat to get to talk about my book.
1: We're looking forward to it. Thank you. Rifle Reports, your your book, tells a story about the struggle for Indonesian independence up to the late 1940s from the outskirts of the Indonesian nation, Karoland in North Sumatra. Can you begin by explaining why you decided to write about those events from there?
0: Thanks, Nick. Um, Well, first of all, this is my second book about Karoland. Um, It would be a long and circuitous route to tell you how I got there, Um, but it was a somewhat accidental uh, choice of a place to do dissertation research. And my dissertation was um, uh, concerned with... um, spirit mediums, and how stories about spirits, how people told stories about spirits in their lives. It's just sort of the human spirit interface, I guess you could say, in a variety of contexts. Among Karo, who are, were at that time about 50%, maybe a little bit less Christian, Uh, maybe a quarter Muslim, and the remainder, um, in the Indonesian term, unconverted or without a religion, actually following um, uh, uh, a set of practices around ancestral veneration. Um, So the first project, which brought me to Karo Land, was concerned with spirits and ghosts and things like that. And the Karo, who are actually pretty sophisticated about these things, um, were puzzled that an anthropologist would be interested in supernatural beliefs and things like that, instead of what is properly an anthropological topic that is kinship. Um, because a Caro anthropologist some years before had written a book about the kinship system, which they're very proud of. At any rate, they did not understand either the people who were uh, uh, spirit mediums themselves or people who were uh, not or who were Christianized. Um, they saw very little purpose in a study of ghosts and supernatural beliefs and things like that. So it was a little difficult to get them to talk about it. But what it seemed like nobody would ever stop talking about was what they did during the period of Indonesia's war for liberation. We'd be on bus rides and two strangers would meet and they'd start in on telling these stories, often rather um, formulaic. About where they'd been, what they'd done, uh, men told yarns about their experiences in coffee shops, and women told stories about this in the market. So it seemed to me, and and I should add that this is, the um, Karo were deeply committed to the nationalist project, uh, but there was virtually nothing uh, that had been written in Indonesia or any kind of recognition that they'd received from. Uh, the central government, about their place in the struggle. So, you know, their feeling was, we've done all this. Why has nobody noticed? Why are we still on the outskirts of the nation? So I thought, well, this is is a topic that's asking to be done. And also it's something that people actually think is worthwhile and would like to have done. So that was the inspiration in the first place. Uh, It became more complicated over time as I came to learn more about uh, what went on, what kinds of experiences people had, and uh, more about the period and some of its uh, political complexities.
1: Can you say something more about this deep commitment? What was it that brought them into the struggle? And perhaps also, mm-hmm. as we're using that term, mm-hmm. you can signal the importance of that term, of that term. work as against um, the alternatives available to
0: you. Yeah, that's it's really an important term. I'm glad we'll have a chance to talk about that. Um, I suppose you could say that... Um, uh, During the New Order period, up until 1998, the Suharto regime, um, a particular form of uh, uh, patriotic citizenship was, um, I don't want to say enforced, but definitely promoted by the government, in which participation in direct participation in the struggle for independence was recognized as a part of being Indonesian. So uh, ethnic groups uh, like the Chinese in particular, who were seen as being less committed, this is part of the justification that was later given for their marginalization within the state. Um, uh, the parts of, uh, of Indonesia where um, either... Uh, there was opposition to the nationalist movement, as in parts of the Moluccas, or in places which were not actually a part of Indonesia at the time, as, for example, East Timor and uh, uh, Papua, uh, were likewise not considered uh, uh, to be as integral a part of the nation. As other places. Pushing it even further, the army, which was being presented as the only ones who actually did anything, uh, were uh, granted a kind of super citizenship, uh, which gave them, to borrow from your panel tomorrow, a kind of impunity that continues to present. Um, So, Uh, It it was something that was politically important to recognize the multiplicity of ways that different groups, uh, whether we're talking about ethnic groups or class positions or gender uh, or out islands versus central Java, what kinds of things have been going on and how you could think about this construction of a nation that wasn't simply a celebration of military triumphalism. So that's kind of of, um, uh, a big piece of um, what seemed to be important to me about this. And particularly, I wanted to emphasize uh, the things that women did and the kinds of stories that women told about their experience because... Uh, that was virtually unwritten for any part of Indonesia other than the most kind of uh, trivial sorts of writing. Um, you know, well, women did things too. And that's it. Uh, and I wanted to say, let's look at how complicated it actually was. So that's kind of uh, um, I would say a kind of background to, you know, what makes this worth doing. Uh, the, question, the second question that you asked, which was about uh, why I refer to this period of time as the independent struggle rather than uh, the Indonesian Revolution, which is the common academic term. And there are several reasons for this. The first one, and the one that's most important to me, is that I'm following the terminology of my informants. Uh, they did not speak of it as... The revolution, and in fact, when at the beginning I thought I could use that term, they didn't understand what I was talking about. Um, and in fact, that's how I began to see that there was a very clear distinction that they were making between what they called "revolusi" and "perjuangan" or struggle. That struggle was the complicated uh, actions. Um, Uh, Focused on uh, the uh, achievement of national sovereignty and the repelling of an outside force. Uh, So it was an outside enemy that they were facing. Revolution referred to, they referred to revolution um, in reference to uh, acts of internal violence within the community. Uh, reprisals against village chiefs who supported the Japanese um, uh, struggles between various militias either over politics or spite or a whole variety of other things so there are a whole range of forms of violence in which Indonesians were fighting with other Indonesians rather than um, uh, in some kind of effort to um, produce a kind of unified national community now the problem with that is that it's also the terminology uh, that was supported by the uh, the Suharto regime um, where the word revolution was pretty much banished from the vocabulary after Sukarno had made it into a kind of, of um uh, token of of nationalism, uh, the Suharto regime really rejected that as a concept and went to the more um, i guess you could say vacuous notion of struggle. but I thought that in addition to being enabling me to make a distinction that my informants wanted to make uh, between two forms of activity that went on during the period. It also, struggle was a more um, inclusive term. It included a lot more different kinds of activities from propaganda rallies to um, rolling cigarettes for the soldiers to uh, learning to... um, learning first aid or teaching classes. It was a whole wide range of activities that seemed to fit better under a rubric of struggle than of revolution. And then the final reason, this is the one that really tipped me over into the uh, to that camp, is I think that there's something a little um, questionable about Uh, referring to this period as a revolution, not because it didn't affect a transformation of the political system. It did quite clearly, I think. But rather because if you understand that the the Dutch colonial rule in the Indies ended with the Japanese invasion in 1943, and the Dutch were expelled at that point, then the struggle had to do with keeping out an external enemy, the Dutch who wanted to come back, rather than of overturning a government that's already in place. So, you know, I don't have an exact, it's, it's a very iffy kind of situation, but rather than following the kind of automatic Referencing of this as a revolution, I thought better to stay with a term that's ambiguous and somewhat problematic.
1: Um, Nevertheless, you suggest that you you don't want to tell another story of resistance from below. We don't Mm -hmm. um, misunderstood struggle in that Mm -hmm. way either. Right? Um, It's it's on the one hand, it's not story of victimization on the other, it's not a celebration of subaltern resistance. Mm-hmm. So then um, <laughs> if not, then then why not? And, and why?
0: Well, it's not subaltern resistance because these are people who are trying to get into the nation, not to resist it. <laughs> they want to be recognized. They want to be part of it. Um, so that's quite a different thing. Um, they're not fighting against the, the might it might be that they should have been, uh, but they were not. They were trying to be a part of it. They were trying to participate, and it was one of the things that's really striking is that unlike um, uh, many other ethnic groups in Sumatra and presumably elsewhere as well, the level of support for nationalist activism throughout the period was extremely high um and i don't i'm not willing to say it was hundred percent, obviously it wasn't there were there were some who um, opposed the um uh, the opposition to uh, <clears throat> to the um nationalist movement but it was quite it's quite striking the extent to which the entire population was mobilized during this time. And I should add, it was mobilized enthusiastically even though they had very little sense of what Indonesia as a kind of a unified uh, region with some kind of claim to political sovereignty was. Uh, They wanted to get rid of the dodge. They wanted to um, uh, have autonomy. They thought about much of it in terms of um, Uh, material goods and benefits that were going to come. But on the whole, uh, there was this, there's a striking um, sense of mass participation in this not fully understood movement. I think that might be a little more common in um, uh, nationalist movements and particularly uh, anti-colonial nationalisms than we sometimes give it credit for. A lot of the um, models of nationalism, uh, Ben Anderson, for example, who looks at nationalism as emerging from a sense of uh, shared identity emerging through reading or through the educational system and the educational hierarchy. But it presumes a starting place uh, which is... um, a small group of, (coughs) excuse me, educated elite men. I wanted to kind of see if you open that up, if you say, wait a minute, let's see what was going on on the ground. How does it look?
1: And to the extent of uh, participation mm-hmm. really does become apparent in the later chapters mm-hmm. of the book, which we'll come to mm-hmm. shortly. But I'd like to cover a couple of other aspects of mm-hmm. the book and how you approach the research before we go mm-hmm. into the sure. chapters. One is your your use of the expression uh, when referring to the book, uh, an ethnographic history. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you mean by ethnographic history and why does it matter for you to write history ethnographically?
0: Okay. Um, that's it. You, you picked some good questions. That's a, that's a good one. Um, uh, there are some people who talk about historical ethnography, and I didn't want to exactly do that. Um, historical ethnography uh, is is a kind of taking of historical text and looking at them in a broader social context. It's basically social history uh, with a little more of a kind of symbolic anthropological overlay. Seems to me. When I talk about ethnographic history, what I mean is a history that is constantly toggling back and forth uh, between moments, that has to be simultaneously aware of um, the time that's being described, the time of the interview and all of the moments in between. So it's a very different kind of temporality that's always aware of that. If you're talking to people rather than texts, text can be problematic too, but if you're talking to people in particular, uh, you don't get to say, you know, uh, this is a memory of this particular event in the past. It's the memory of this particular moment in the past as told to particular people in a particular present uh, but one that 's been mediated by everything that 's come in between, not only that, but you then have to add in the other layer of the understanding of the writer in uh configuring it afterwards, because much of you know what I have taken away from this um, really uh became clear for me. Afterwards, and in fact, in some cases, after the end of the new order regime, then you could start seeing uh, ways that um, uh, particular moments were especially telling. Let's say so. It's this. Uh, is sort of starting from the assumption that ethnography um, is predicated on face-to-face encounters, uh, and then then you think about what are the implications when you try to um, uh, tell a historical story while keeping that uh, constantly um, uh, in your eye, in the reader's eye as well. What what kind of
1: challenges did you encounter using that approach Mm -hmm. you mentioned? For instance, the risk, uh, or perhaps it's not a Mm -hmm. risk, of the ethnographer buying into the narrative mm-hmm. of the, the teller. Can you briefly say something about
0: well, how yeah, you, how yeah. you to work? this point? is the ethnographic seduction. Uh, it's very hard to dislike people when you're in a conversation with them. There were a few that I had some serious trouble with, but mostly um, there's something about that one-on-one relationship that demands a certain amount of trust on both sides. Uh, and uh, that makes it hard sometimes uh, to um, maintain a critical distance. At the same time, uh, your informant has either because uh, just wanting to be friendly or collegial or being impressed with having a, a foreigner come to talk to them or being uh, annoyed that a foreigner is coming to talk to them or whatever feelings they happen to have, those are going to play into this as well. Um, and uh, so there's always this kind of constant building of uh, at least a temporary relationship that um, uh, that's in one way, particularly when you're talking about a person's life, uh, and they're trying to show you what they're thinking. You're trying to um, identify as much as you can with it uh, to make sense out of, to see it from their point of view. And it's something you never quite do, of course. But um, but that that um, uh, that wish, that desire to uh, to understand and to um, uh, appreciate. Uh, Another person's experience, I think, is really, um, uh, it's at the heart of the ethnographic endeavor, but it's also a bit of a danger because it's easy for people to lie to you. It's easy for you to be deluded about what you think they're saying, which is maybe not necessarily what they are. So there's lots of room for mistakes, Uh, And for misreadings and misinterpretation, particularly when you're working in a uh, cross-cultural setting. Uh, And if you're working in a language that's not your first language, uh, you're going to miss a lot of things. There's a lot that's going to be missed
1: relatedly, mm-hmm. you also stressed that uh, unlike the political scientist, you, you didn't write the book to try to solve puzzles about mm-hmm. how and why people acted the way they did, mm-hmm. so to cast light on some general mm-hmm. phenomena, but rather that you wanted to retain a sense of puzzlement. So why does the mm-hmm. sense of puzzlement matter for, for doing...
0: Because it seems to me that there's always more to be learned. And uh, the problem with solving puzzles is that once the puzzle is solved, it's done uh, until somebody finds a new puzzle in the same uh, set of issues. Um, So um, what I find appealing is just, and it's because I'm looking at stories. There's Obviously, there are going to be other times when you do want to get to the bottom of things. If you're doing human rights work, for example, this kind of, well, anything goes and let's retain our puzzlement about what really happened, that won't fly. It's just not appropriate. But in a case like this, where there is so much uncertainty and so much instability in what could have or did happen at a particular moment in time, I think it's really important to hold on to the sense that we don't understand everything. It also introduces a little bit of necessary modesty in how we approach other people's lives. And um, uh, for me, that's really essential in anthropology, uh, probably more than any other discipline, because so much of it is dealing directly with um with people,
1: Mary, if it's okay, mm-hmm. um, let's move from the larger questions mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll return to them. But uh, uh, and go into the land. Okay, can you briefly set the scene for us? Tell us a, a little bit more about the place, mm-hmm. the people, and the years leading up to the period on which the book is concentrated. Okay.
0: Yeah, uh, don't let me go on too long about this, though, because I can. <laughs> yeah, give me that when it's enough. Um, the um, uh, Karo are a, um, uh, a peasant, um, peasant-based ethnic society of the North Sumatran uplands. Karo land—they're one of the Batak, um, part of the Batak ethnolinguistic group that all have similar kinds of kinship systems. They're very strongly based in kinship Uh, and I I will spare you the details of that. Um, They were um, incorporated by the Dutch into um, the province of East Sumatra, the residency of East Sumatra uh, and the late years of the 19th century. And um, the, actually, the early 20th century—I think it was 1904—when the um, the peace treaty was signed, largely because uh, the Dutch wanted to um, pacify uh, the entire region. And, as, and partly to block the incursions of Achenese. Um so they wanted to make the, the Bataks their friends by Christianizing them and so on uh, in order to form a blockade against, uh, against Islam and specifically against Ache. Um so they pacified the region and then didn't really do very much it's kind of interesting. You think about colonialism as being this massive exploitative system, which it was in the lowlands. This was a plantation area uh, famous for deli tobacco, um, for palm oil plantations, now in rubber. It was an enormous uh, economic um, uh, zone for the Dutch colonial state. Enormous amounts of money were coming out of this area. Um, but the Caro were not there's no money up there. They just wanted to keep people quiet. So they were brought into the colonial state, a kind of indirect rule system was set up and again i'm going to spare you the details of this but um, but basically they the caro were pretty much left alone. A road was built. They developed commercial agriculture and um, fruits and vegetables primarily. But there wasn't that much of a colonial impact. The missions didn't really have much effect either, <clears throat> and it wasn't until 1965 that you saw massive uh, conversions to Christianity. So, but the Karo were kind of on the outskirts of colonialism as well. They were at the um, Karo land is about, uh, I think, 50 kilometers or so from. Uh, The city of Medan, which is, I think, Indonesia's fourth largest city now. Um, But it was the main hub of the plantation zone. Uh, So they were close enough to have a lot of influence from uh, the, the European establishment on the coast. But without much way to exploit it other than through marketing fresh produce. So they weren't horribly affected by Dutch colonial rule, but in a whole variety of ways, the establishment of of a uh, colonial administration created all sorts of political problems um, in in the same way that colonial establishments do, most everywhere, uh, by formalizing certain relationships and delegitimizing other ones they set in, play a whole series of kind of um, uh, problems that later come back. And that's pretty much what happened during the independence struggle. By the time of of the Japanese invasion in 1943, they, sorry, 42, I believe it was, the, Karo had, uh, uh, begun to aggressively involve themselves in education in particular. they had started out way behind the other groups in the, in the area and had pretty much caught up. Um, so there was a lot of available schooling, there was a lot of interest in um, uh, modern uh, uh, modern ways, let's say, but without they, they, there was a kind of blockage of getting anything done. So that's that's kind of the situation uh, at the time of um, of the um, uh, the beginning of independence. And uh, Tony Reed has really written a wonderful book, "The Blood of the People," about um, the early part of the struggle, mainly from the perspective of Medan, uh and what was going on there. And, but the problem is that um, because of blockades during the period of the struggle, not much information about what was going on in the uplands made it to the city. And so it winds up being a blank locally, even more so uh, when you um, uh, use sources from Java. N- nobody has a clue what's going on. It's really. Uh, the, and, and it's not surprising because the various organizations change names all the time. People move from one group to the next. The affiliations are never clear. You can have a group uh, in Sumatra with the same name as a group in Java, but they have no connection to each other. Uh, it's just, you know, it's very, very wild. And um, early on, the um, the scene in Sumatra was... Uh, perceived from Java as just being um, out of control, undisciplined. And to some extent, that was not
1: entirely wrong. We'll, we'll go into mm-hmm. um, the, those events more mm-hmm. momentarily. Yeah. Um, maybe we can work through chapter by chapter mm-hmm. referring to the titles mm-hmm. of the chapters because they're wonderfully evocative of their, their subject mm-hmm. matter. The first chapter is The Golden Bridge. What was The Golden Bridge and yeah. why start the okay.
0: The Golden Bridge was uh, a phrase that uh, Sukarno used several times in speeches to refer to independence. Um uh, it's the independence of the Golden Bridge to the future, uh, and he rather carefully left unspecified what was going to be on the other side of that bridge. It was you know this we're going to all walk across this bridge together and we'll be in independence, and but the specifics of what that meant were left open. Uh, so it was this vision of. Uh, moving into a glorious future, but without any particular certainty about what that actually meant. Um, and I thought that that not only was that a kind of key phrase in Sukarno's rhetoric, but it also seemed to me to reflect the Karo attitude, that they completely bought into this idea um, that... Um, that getting rid of the Dutch and becoming a nation was going to lead them into a delicious future. And that was a term that was repeatedly used when they talked about it. Um, but as they themselves told me over and over that, you know, they didn't know where they were going. They, they just wanted to get on this bridge. So that was the the image that I was trying to, to start with, this notion of, uh, a trajectory, a pathway uh, that was leading to something, and it was something glorious. Um, but you know, you had to get there first before you knew what it was.
1: I was struck by this term, the, the delicious future. Mm-hmm. The independence would be delicious. Mm-hmm. It does come up again and again mm-hmm. in the narratives. Can you say yeah. something more about it? Because it seems to seems to be a term on which a, a lot of things hinge. What <laughs> <your term. clears throat> Um.
0: Yeah, it, it did. I mean, this is one of those places where, um, uh, you know, you follow your informants. And when a word starts appearing uh, repeatedly in stories, then you start to take it seriously. And they used the um, uh, the term, the Indonesian term sometimes, ena. And they also used um, uh, the kara term. Uh, uh So both terms were used, and it, I assume that it must have been a term that was used in speeches. Um, but it also, you know, it, it, it's very evocative. It's a very—it's not just delicious in the sense of food, but it's also nice um, uh, and pleasing, and usually pleasing in a sensuous way um not erotic but more you know physically enjoyable um so you can have a pleasant nap for example and that can be enough, or a pleasant bath or you know a pleasant meal it kind of goes on but it but it has a sense of of a kind of embodied enjoyment and i think that's kind of where they were going with this um uh that this idea that independence was something delicious. It was something tasty. It was something um um well pleasant doesn't quite capture it, but it's this sense of yummy
1: <laughs> well, let's see if we can draw it out to yeah. some other discussion. Yes. The and mm-hmm. and as we're going into the narratives, um could you say something more about wh- why you So much of the book does turn on narratives, Mm -hmm. what they mean for you, and in particular the narratives of women and their wartime experiences.
0: Well, I started out, before I was an anthropologist, I started out as a folklorist, uh, and I did a master's degree in folklore before deciding there was no real academic future in that field. Uh, And I somehow thought that anthropology would be more lucrative, Uh, (laughs) which it was, but not much. Uh, at any rate, um, that background I think made me much more, um, attentive to, uh, to language, uh, to the way that stories are produced, um, and the, the, the formal elements of, um, uh, spoken narrative of stories, um, So that made me very attentive to what stories were about. And that's kind of where I began. Uh, And then the second piece of that is if you're trying to um, approach events in the past from a different perspective than what is available archivally, then you basically have to talk to people if they're still alive. Um, but then the questions become, how do you understand those conversations? How do you make sense of the way people talk about things? How much of it is a, uh, a tale type? How much of it is, um, uh, uh, something that's, um, has borrowed elements or, um, aspects that are somehow or another, um. Formulaic, taken from uh, folk tales, for example, um, there's stylistic elements that pick up uh, folktale formats as well. So those are the things that I was I was really kind of very attentive to methodologically. That's what I wanted to to see is how do you how do you think about the stories that people tell in a kind of archival spirit, but with an awareness that this is an archive that is constantly morphing and changing positioned. Um, the other thing is I just like stories. They were they were exciting. They were fun. Um, and the stories that, that men and women both told about independence was like this was the best time of their life. You talk to old ladies on a bus and they would get really excited telling you the list of places that they went. Um, or you talk to a man and he would, you know. Just go on and tell you story after story of the crazy things that happened. Uh, and I, I repeated some of them. And you the guy who shot up in the air and shot himself. <laughs> he accidentally set off his gun and then the bullet went straight up and came back down and hit him or things like that. And they told all these stories about themselves. They kind of presented themselves as fools a little bit, um, rather than as being dangerous. Uh, But as they they really kind of enjoyed talking about their own foolishness. But it was particularly, I think, it was especially um, interesting hearing the stories that women told because... um, these were so different from their ordinary conversations. Uh, storytelling in caroland is in for the most part I would say a kind of male prerogative. right? certainly used to be, probably not so much anymore for two reasons. Uh, one is that women did most of the farm work uh, which kept them busy and men sat around in coffee shops and gambled and told stories. Um, So that they were, not only did they have more time to tell stories, but they also had more practice in presenting stories to an audience that might not be familiar. So they could produce stories that were nice and neatly enclosed uh, and perfect for, you know the traveling anthropologist that puts down the microphone and says, now tell me a story. They would tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end. That's not the kind of storytelling that women generally did, village women in particular. I have to say, I think that um, the involvement in the Christian church has changed that in a lot of ways. The church has provided um, a, a specific venue that, that women now talk about, talk in a lot. But for older village women, their conversations were primarily limited to their neighbors, and they were told in the midst of work. Uh, so you might tell a piece of the story today and another piece of it tomorrow, or refer uh, in passing to a story it 's like the uh, who was the comedian that talked about telling jokes by number. Uh, and you just say number 13 and everybody would fall over laughing because they knew which joke that was. It's the same kind of thing. If you're talking to an audience of people who've already heard all those stories, it's, you're going to tell different kinds of stories, and those are unfortunately not the kinds of stories that the traveling anthropologist is that well-equipped to, to understand as stories. They're I mean, certainly fine for information gathering, but they just don't work very well. Um, and so, that, I'm really those were the things I was interested in. Now, for the women that I particularly uh, talked to, their experiences during the independence struggle was a little bit different. Uh, for one thing, uh, because they had something to tell about that made an exciting story. Uh, It wasn't like daily life, going to the fields or uh, having a fight with your neighbor or whatever happens in everyday life. This was a period that was special. And it was special in ways that were um, uh, gendered differently. Uh, In other words, young women uh, who would normally be kept at home to take care of their younger siblings or to work in the fields or to cook the rice or all those things – did things that were different. They went out on their own. They went to, they learned things. They, um, uh, during the evacuation of the Highlands, they traveled long distances, and they were particularly uh, fascinated with the stories of their travels, even if it was something as... seemingly routine as a list of the places where they stopped. And they would share these stories with one another. And we went to this village and this village and this village. And somebody we would say, well, did you go to this one? We went there. and What happened there? And so there was really an interesting way that new kinds of narrative techniques were being developed around uh, this particular set of experiences. And both because the kinds of stories that people told and the kinds of experiences that they had uh, were so different than what was conventional, what had been recognized, Uh, I thought they were especially important to acknowledge. And early on when I had, um, uh, this is something I mentioned in the book, one of the early uh, interview sessions I did, um, the village, um, I as usual, went to see the village headman and sort of get permission to talk to people in the village. And I said what I was doing. He laughed at me. He just thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. When I talked to women about what they did in the struggle, that no, they didn't do anything. They just cooked rice before the before the struggle. They were cooking rice then. They cooked right during the struggle. They cooked rice today. They're still cooking rice. What kind of struggle is that? But that wasn't how they saw it. They saw it as doing something important. Uh, and out of the ordinary. The sense of living in an extraordinary time and finding a way to tell about it was what I was really uh, trying to capture in the stories. And I wanted to stay as close as I could to what they said while making sense of it for an audience of
1: outsiders. Well, let's take an example mm-hmm. of just one of the narratives, mm-hmm. and there are so many yeah. in the book and that to urge listeners to to take a look and read them themselves. The story of the buried guns, Mm -hmm. which is at the heart of the second chapter. Can you give a a synopsis of that story again? (laughs) And what are the characteristics of that story that you would like to identify for listeners that you think go to the larger points that you're making about the research that you've done?
0: That was was one of the... um... Uh, one of the most interesting and that uh, building a whole chapter around uh, in this case uh, two individuals really uh, was because I had such a rich set of material uh, for them Uh, the two characters were Slama Ginting who was the head of the largest of the um, uh, militias not the army but the um, kind of volunteer um, uh, freedom fighters uh, in the caro area. And uh, so he was a major figure during this period. Uh, and so I met him. Well, he was one of the first people that I met, actually, when I started doing this project, uh, he and his wife. And so I went to visit them in their house. This is kind of a long way to get to the story. Sorry. But... Um, <coughs> um, I went to their house, and I said, here, I'm going to do this study of women in the revolution. And he says, I can tell you all about women in the revolution. I know everything there is to know, he said. His wife didn't say anything. She stayed in the corner. Anyway, uh, he said he wasn't feeling too well and that um, I should come back later, and we'd stay up all night and uh, swap stories, and he'd tell me everything I needed, and then I could go home and write my book right away. Uh, 2 months later he died before I ever saw him again and um so um following up on that I um uh met several times with his wife who passed away just actually not very long ago at all a couple of months ago um but I I met with her and I said you know since your husband can't tell tell me his story anymore uh, maybe you can tell it to me. And so, through that means of her speaking for him, I got her to tell this kind of story of her life and how she uh, wound up being married off at 13 to this um, uh, cousin that she didn't know for kind of political reasons and how what a, uh, a kind of Difficult situation she found herself in, um, and it went on it was very it was really um, funny and poignant and, and touching in many ways, but the core of it was the story of this of these guns that um, uh, that her husband had acquired somehow and there are various stories about how he got them, but he got them from the Japanese right after the surrender. Um, either by hijacking a truck of guns or because um, a Japanese officer uh, negotiated a deal and passed them on. At any rate, he got these guns. And at this point, um, uh, his wife was staying in his home village uh, up in the Highlands, and he wasn't there that much because he was traveling around uh, trying to recruit people and building up uh, membership in the militia. And um, so he came and his friend showed up there one night with these guns. And he said, ah, "Hey, we've got to do something with these guns. You've got to hide them. And she says, okay, I have an idea. Okay. She was part of uh, a... Um, Village work group on iran which is uh, a collective shared work group and she says okay what we'll do is I'll get the iran to go up to the uh, uh, up to the field I have a rice field and bury them in the rice field and uh, so she did um, I'll, I'll cut this short because you can go on quite a long bit about the details of this at any rate uh, the part of it that was funny is that uh, uh, so she was telling him how to do it, and uh, she said, "Well, then I had to do it myself because he 'd never even held a hoe <laughs> so, so she did the work, buried the guns, and then you know her husband went off she went off and to visit her family elsewhere, and then came back and somehow the du- guns had been dug up, and those were the first guns of the independence struggle in East Sumatra, it was actually those guns that were dug up uh, that became the first um, uh, weapons of of the militias that, that forced the announcement of independence to be made in Mayda. It's kind of long and complicated. So for her, it was this extraordinary moment of what she did. and you know, it was not this is what my husband did. This is not about the struggle. This is not about the organizations. This is about how you dig a hole in the field, how you bury things properly, uh, how, you, um, how you perform a task. And all of her stories were very much about how you successfully perform tasks that are given to you.
1: And the next couple of chapters um, mm-hmm. develop the story out of the digging up of, mm-hmm. of those guns. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we don't have time yeah. to go into all of them, but I'd really like to jump ahead mm-hmm. and ask you to say something briefly um, about the last chapters in the book, because mm-hmm. 5, 6, and 7 all approach events in 1947 in mm-hmm. different ways. Chapter 5, mm-hmm. The Sea of Fire. Mm-hmm. What was The Sea of Fire? Mm-hmm. And why does it matter for this story of what happened in? Okay, Canada?
0: great. Uh, the term "Sea of Fire" is normally applied to uh, uh, the burning of the city of Bandung in 1946, I think 45, um, early in the independence period and uh it's a classic term that's used for this uh spontaneous what well, it wasn't it was the uh, uh the nationalist militias uh, when they were uh ordered out of bandung retreated out of the city but as they went they burned large parts of the city um as a, a statement of you know that they're not acquiescing to um uh enemy Commands, and that's become a kind of iconic moment in uh, Indonesian nationalist history: the the the, uh, the efforts of the the youth of of Bandung. In Karoland, the Sea of Fire refers to. It's a term that they've used there also uh, to refer to the. Um, the burning of many villages and towns across the highlands at the time of the uh, Dutch invasion in 1947. Um, And likewise, as in Bandung, as the um, uh, Dutch forces moved into the highlands, the nationalist um, uh, propagandists had urged the people to... Move out as a demonstration of unwillingness to uh, return to Dutch rule. And as people moved out, they were told to burn the villages. As a kind of, uh, as they put it, one guy put it to me, is that we had read in the newspapers about the uh, the um, the way that the Russians stopped the uh, uh, the Blitzkrieg uh, by burning everything so there wouldn't be it so the, the German army couldn't have any resources there. So, But we forgot that we're in the tropics <laughs> so we didn't have a winter on our side uh, but anyway what they did was they encouraged every, people to burn their houses, burn the villages so that the Dutch would have no place to stay well they didn't burn all the villages but they did burn a lot of them uh, it wasn't so much the villagers themselves, in most cases, it was the militias uh, that did the burning after people moved out. But it was, uh, it was put to me by um, uh, the wife of um, uh, an important uh, uh, militia officer, uh, that everybody knows the the Bandung Sea of Fire, but nobody knows the Karo Sea of Fire. And We burned the whole district. We didn't just mess around with a town. uh, Burn the whole thing. Um, And that shows you how patriotic we were. So it's like two points. One is that I wanted to use that to describe the the evacuation in which virtually the entire population of the Karo Highlands, which is some Oh, I don't know. Several hundred thousand people moved out and stayed in the woods in shelters in camps in huts uh um, much of them up in the the area um in uh the border area of southern Aceh and and uh uh northern tapanuli and uh uh so they moved out and they stayed out for about six months. So it was a period that really for Caro marked a very dramatic transition, a time that, that really defined a break for them between, um, uh, a kind of colonial status quo and um, they they thought of it as a kind of move into modernity. They didn't quite put it in those terms, but it set things in motion in a kind of dramatic way. Um, yeah, and chapter, in, in Chapter 7, you explore
1: that point mm-hmm. through a song. Mm-hmm. Can you briefly explain why you use that song and mm-hmm. perhaps relate it back to the the more general points that we've been discussing around memory practice mm-hmm. and why it matters for your work yeah okay the um uh, the
0: the song the particular song uh was a long uh, autobiographical um, improvisational um Work by a woman by the name of Scenic uh who was a um, a well known performer during the period following the struggle. She, the, it was performed in a a, a traditional genre of uh, what they call katoning katoning, which is kind of blessing song it's produced. Um, um, for ceremonies, and it's usually um, directed in praise of the sponsoring clan or subclan or lineage and their various kin groups, and it's heavily formulaic. But during the period immediately following the independence struggle, a number of people, uh, most notably Scenic, you know, produced uh Katoni texts that were based in personal experience uh, and were accounts of this period of the evacuation uh, and the travels so these actually the songs which I started collecting during my first uh, research time in carolan in before I started this project um uh, were they were recorded they were performed later on up and through the early 60s um relatively commonly i think and um and to some extent still in um in the the mid 90s you hear one every now and then this one struck me as being particularly effective uh in part because it didn't follow the conventional pattern. So that uh, when Caro heard it, they would say, well, this isn't as good as uh, the one that's performed by somebody else. Um, uh, They didn't think it was as good. And the reason was that it was not completely loaded with the formulaic praise, phrases, and things like that. Uh, so it you know didn't have that kind of elegance. It was very simple language. That meant I liked it because I could follow it, I could understand it, and I could follow the storyline. It was very dramatic. Uh, so to me, it had uh, a more compelling narrative structure and one that I could work with without having to stop every three words and footnote and explanation of some kind of... Uh, a traditional metaphor or term or something like that. Uh, but it was just this beautiful work that, that um, uh, encapsulated to me this idea of um, that in a way I was trying to capture with the whole book of uh, people moving into an unknown future um, and pivoting it on what was lost as well as what was gained (coughs) and a sense of this incredible uncertainty about where they were going and the kinds of hardships that they went through and then at the end and one of the most intriguing twists in the whole narrative uh, Scenic tells in the song of meeting uh, during their exile in Aceh uh, meeting with another older woman, uh, and scenic uh, was sort of complaining about her hard lot and how they couldn't go home because they didn't have any clothes and didn't have any money. And the the older woman says to her, and this is um, this is the song. Uh, the older woman says, "Yeah, that's that's really you know you really have a hard time, but let me tell you what happened to me." Uh, and she tells of her losing her children. Um, to malaria during the, um, the period when they were in um, uh, in Aceh. And, you know, that now she's in a, she can't go home. There's no home to go to because the children are gone. Um, and at that point, Sini comes up with a conclusion that is extraordinary in the context of, of the kind of formulaic genre that she's working in, uh, which is to recognize not that. Everybody had the same experience, but everybody had different experiences, that they suffered and struggled in different ways, and that um, they should talk about what happened with one another and acknowledge that, but without unifying it into there's only one way that we can struggle, there's only one way to suffer. I thought that was a really um, uh, powerful and poignant kind of uh, uh, way to conclude cl- the story.
1: One of the aspects of the mm-hmm. song that you point to, and I really mm-hmm. do want to ask about, this mm-hmm. is uh, that the absence from the song of agents of terror and, and violence. Mm-hmm. Why is that, and uh, what is it?
0: I don't know. I thought it was very strange. I I just struck me as being odd that um the, the song what the song describes is travel through empty forests and up uninhabited uh uh mountainsides and uh with the fear of the Dutch but no sign of them, uh with the fear of planes overhead. Um so that once you get into cenic 's personal experience it 's you 're in this world where anything can happen, uh, but it 's uh, for whatever reason that 's not pictured uh, the the actual agents of violence they don 't encounter Dutch soldiers um, they don 't uh, they aren 't bombed uh, and people were they also don 't encounter uh uh rebel militias or bandits uh which is a more likely outcome when you're when small groups are uh in the forest and it turned out i finally discovered on a uh a follow up interview with Sinek is the reason that they didn't have trouble with bandits is that they were not although the song depicts them as if it were a family traveling alone through the forest in fact Uh, that was not the case, that she and her family were traveling uh, with an escort of soldiers, Indonesian soldiers, uh, who were uh, taking a group of political prisoners to uh, a camp in Aceh. So they were were guarded and protected. That doesn't come up in the song. Uh, What happens in the song is something that allows her to create a kind of common moment with other uh, individuals Uh, but it doesn't raise the possibility of revolution of revolution of us against us there's no sign of that anywhere
1: But it it is part of struggle to get back to that. It is. um, For the reasons that you need.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: um, Mary, we we could speak for another hour and still have so much more to talk about Mm -hmm. after that. Um, You've been very generous with your time. Before we close, I'm sure listeners would love to know what you've been working on since the (laughs) book was published and what we can look forward to.
0: Well, um, uh, as you may know, uh, academic books these days, uh, publishers uh, encourage shortness. They encourage brevity. Uh, In order to get this book published, I had to cut um, a large chunk of the beginning, which dealt with the Japanese occupation. But more importantly, I had to End the story kind of in media race um, at the beginning of the second military campaign. Uh, there is a whole other story that comes after this. Um, and it's the story of how the army wins and how the state um, forms itself. Um, and i decided when they said this this has to be you know many pages shorter than it is uh, i decided that i would leave that part of the my account out because it really is a different story this is a story of what Caro thought they were doing it's a story about the golden bridge it's about this idea of independence that's at the end of that bridge. And I wanted to leave that kind of spirit in place. But the other piece of that is how a state latches onto um, uh, this sense of aspiration and uh, establishes itself and legitimizes itself. That's a piece that's uh, still in need of some work, but I'm hoping to uh, get that uh, put together uh, fairly soon. I've also been working on a project in the U.S. that's completely unrelated to this. It's on um, uh, U.S. military culture, which is a strange topic to jump to from Indonesia. Uh, But if I were to get back to Karo land, which I hope to do very soon. Uh, the issue that seems to me to really need attention now, um, is the, um, the impact of the volcanic eruption in, uh, North Sumatra of Mount Sinabu, which is in the center of the Karo Islands, uh, which has been erupting for the last couple of years. And, uh, has required um, another relatively massive evacuation um, of about an 11-kilometer circuit around the mountain. Uh, People have been moved into relocation camps. Uh, The terrain has been... Uh, inundated with ash the uh, I don't know exactly what the health impacts are but they certainly can't be good um, it's really a, a, a difficult situation and uh, uh, one that I'm really interested in uh, seeing firsthand um, I'm, as it is I'm kind of keeping up with it through um, uh, various media forms Caro uh, have gotten very Uh, good about using Facebook, among other things, uh, to organize activities around this. But um, the environmental issues right now, I think, are the key thing that I would really uh, like to think more about and to um, talk to people about, see, you know, uh, what kind of impact that's having.
1: Well, I'm sure that just on the basis of your short remarks on the conditions there alone, we'll have listeners who will look into uh, Mm -hmm. those events, as indeed I will. Um, In any case, um, Mary Steedley, I'd like to thank you very much for speaking with me today about Rifle Reports, a story of Indonesian independence, and congratulate you on the book.
0: Thank you so much. This was quite a
1: pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. I look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian studies. And if you have the time, please do check out the New Look New Books Network for a lot of other great channels. Hey,
0: thank God,